A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. This week, I'm talking with Leopoldo Magucci. Leo is section manager for Atachu Chemicals America here in Houston, where he heads up the commodity resin trading business for Atachu. Leo has almost 20 years of experience in the resin business, and I think he's going to share a lot of great insights with us today. Leo, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you very much, Victoria. Thank you for inviting yeah, delighted to have you here. So why don't you give us a brief introduction to Itachi? Great. Yes. Itachi is a Japanese trading company founded in uh, 163 years ago. It's uh, in 1858. The company was founded by Itochu, Mr. Shubei, who started in a very humble textile trading business as a merchant running around Japan in sandals on foot. But today, Itochu is a publicly traded global trading and investment company with over $26 billion in sales and around $2.6 billion in profit. It's traded in the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and Itochu has a wide variety of businesses that they get involved from metals and mining, food, energy, chemicals, uh, retail, machinery, and other businesses. And Itochu has over 100,000 employees present in 67 countries and owning over 366 group companies around the world. In specific, myself here in Houston, we are at the business section for plastics uh, exports. And our role here is we support North American plastic producers in sales and marketing of uh, polymer resins, such as polyethylene, polypropylene, PVC, especially resins as well. And we have global presence, as you told you, and what we primarily try to uh, maintain is that function of balancing supply and demand of resins globally. But also, we also have distribution companies that are deeply rooted in different regions in the world in providing dedicated marketing and stock and distribution business, as well as technical services to our customers. But what Tucci is unique is actually we are also investing in manufacturing of plastic products, such as shrink film, shopping bags, agriculture films, household injection, molding products, and compounds and master batches. So we own approximately 450,000 tons of plastic resin conversion capacity in manufacturing companies that we own around the world. Interesting. I did not realize that conversion part of your business, right? I knew about the, the trading part. So where is most of that conversion capacity? Is any of it here in North America or is it primarily Asia-centered? Primarily is in Asia concentrated, like in China. It started all because Japan was becoming a very expensive place to manufacture. So a lot those uh, on the 90s and uh, we had pushed for many producers moving to Asia, to China specifically, or Southeast Asia regions to take advantage of the cheaper labor cost. And they'll manufacture finished products and they'll import into Japan. But Today, Itochi also has ownership in some of the conversions, uh, like, for example, shrink film producer in the U.S. We have a company called Bonds, 
and they do PVC shrink films for like these uh, the bottles uh, shrink film. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yes, we have a plant in North Carolina, and also they have plant in uh, Uruguay, and we also have compounding businesses in Europe that we are investing in there. So primarily is the automotive industry, but so we have increase our presence in all the regions as well. That's interesting. Yeah. So be touching on multiple parts of the value chain, just rather than just, and that's not a just because it's a big market, but the trading, it's part of the business. So interesting. You know, here in the US, you're, you know, you're primarily an export business, which I would guess has been a little bit challenging this year, but tell us about what's going on in resins markets today, polyethylene, polypropylene, PVC. What do you see happening? Yes. Resin markets today is, as you say, it has been quite a roller coaster ride, I might say, ever since it started since last year, March 2020. And with lockdowns, we had moments where residents were uncertain the demand in the North America with all the lockdowns of factories and restaurants and all these uh, businesses. And with that, there was a huge push of resin to be exported. Then the next thing happened that consumers started buying more products. Consumer behavior changed into going instead of malls, going into uh, online shopping. So the demand for the films, uh, especially for like uh, e-commerce films that we call when the, what is needed for packaging and shipments, those uh, spiked up. Obviously, food, there were more consumption in supermarkets instead of restaurants, but that also brought a huge consumption of plastic resin um, on those grocery bags and bread bags in those areas. So it was a reversal of after the uncertainty of export, now we need all the resin here in the U.S. So it went through a prolonged period of time of uh, adjusting to the, uh, the rising demand. The supply had to adjust to that. Yeah. What we are seeing is that we went through a cold freeze in uh, February this year. Yeah, that was a big disruption in a lot of ways, right? Big economic impact. Yes, yes. And we've been to hurricanes and flooding in Houston many times. So we had um, a lot of issues that stem from over the course of years with production and tightness. But this was quite different with having simultaneous shutdowns from oil, gas, nitrogen, our utilities, we're talking about also plants, everything just shut down, not only the resin or the monomer, but it's also the additives and the catalyst. So having to start all these units, petrochemical units in the Gulf area simultaneously, it's a challenge with bottlenecks making it difficult to have a smooth takeoff. And we saw this uh, was going to be a lengthy process. So up until I'll say June, May, during that timing, we were looking at the numbers. And I think finally June, we saw some uh, significant spike up on the inventory of the resin by the chemistry council. So it gives us a little bit of feeling that things are getting normal. However, if you look at the details, there's still some shortage of hexane comonomer, for example. Mm. Hexane comonomer is uh, used in HD blow molding manufacturing, as well as uh, production, as well as uh, in the linear low metallocene resins that are hexane-based. So that has continued to drag the availability for export. Got it. By August, we started seeing that there's uh, quite an inventory bill. Part of it is because there are some plant maintenance that we in August and September that the, some producers were building that inventory, but also is the hurricane season. As we found out. 
as we found out, yes, with this uh, hurricane that Ida just went through. Yeah. Because the fact that, you know, today uh, shutting down a plant for maintenance takes longer time to go through the process as there's a lot of social distancing and managing of the situation. So um, we look at the numbers, it looks uh, quite a, a buildup of uh, inventory, but that's also rightfully is because of those background and what's happening. Right. So some of it was just planning as opposed to a supply demand imbalance. Interesting. And so, of course, now Ida has hit Louisiana and impacted, as we were talking earlier, many other parts of the U.S. I mean, this is obviously an effect on your business when you think about relying on product coming out of the U.S. Gulf Coast to serve global customers. How do you guys respond to that? So are you shifting supply sources? Are you you know, changing your commitments? How do you deal with just this continued supply volatility, I guess I would call it, to your business and to your customers and to your producer partners as well? Yes. From our side, from North America, well, exports is actually one of the, the last lines, I'll say, of price. Definitely domestic takes uh, quite an important priority because of the nearness and the uh, contracts that are in place. And also the market has a much higher price net back for producers. Right. So what happens is that when we get cut in this kind of uh, situation for a long period of time, we see a natural effect of bringing materials from other regions. And that's what exactly Itochu's uh, company like Itochu is uh, good at. Is we do see that arbitrage opens suddenly and, mm. and customers are all looking to seek for the, the where they can source the material when things are dry. So we were able to bring materials from Asia, from China. At one point, China was uh, slow and actually the demand was like kind of uh, declining because uh, I think there was a, a strong initiative earlier this year from the Chinese government to contain that inflationary effect of commodities. So they clamped down on the pricing of the futures and that could cause a little speculation. And they were kind of controlling that. China does that. <laughs> yeah, well... That they have the ability to do so and the influence in the market, right? They're a huge part of the de- demand of polymers. Yeah, so. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with that phenomenon, it opened up arbitrage of Chinese product being re-exported. A lot of our cargos that were once sent from the U.S. that went to China and there were a lot of cargo that was coming out. Obviously, as it told you, we do not handle necessarily uh, these kind of products that are coming in and out or more driven by producers. But we saw competition getting into the market and exporting into South Europe from China, China going into Latin America. So we are seeing this also impacting the producer's position because Southeast Asian producers were getting inundated with a lot of Chinese re-export materials. So they had an excess of material. We helped them move into uh, Latin America, which was getting quite tight. But at the same time, as you know, container market has been really, really strong. Yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions here is, you know, what, how has the logistics challenges impacted this, right? So it's container shortages, dramatic increases in freight costs, right? How have you guys managed that or what impact is that having on trade flows in your business? This is the, probably the hardest thing to do because these freight rates, as probably you've read 
a lot of these have to do with this pent up demand of the shifting of e-commerce and a lot of that and spiked up the demand from the partly also driven by the stimulus that U.S. government was injecting into the U.S. economy. And the individuals were changing into from small houses to big houses. So they had to readjust their lifestyle with furnitures and with all the amenities for the yard to be become like a small park for them. Yeah, consumer spending around people's homes and lifestyle has been high. Yeah. So all these have created this sudden, I like to say that this huge volume of product that is just going through this like a imaginary boa, I would say, that is just that huge volume going to from Asia to USA. And the problem there is that uh, the retailers like uh, Walmart or Home Depot's they jumped in straight into getting secure space from the container shipping lines. And then after that, whatever is left over is what we are seeing that is the freight was going up from $4,000 per 40-foot container. It spiked up today is $25,000 per 40-foot container. That's crazy. That's crazy. The container. So yeah. you're not going to own it. You just need it for 45 days and then you're going to give it back. But it's equivalent to it. So how can you deal with that kind of cost? There's nothing as a intermediary. All we got to do is just pass on this cost. Mm. Economic phenomenon, so I'll say. Sometimes we call in economics, you know, supply demand that there is a dead weight loss. And debt weight loss is usually equivalent to the tax, right? That the tax is increased. There's a lot of loss created by that the debt weight loss. But now what I think I should interpret this increased uh, freight rate is the debt weight loss caused by the freight. You have the supply prices, supplier not able to push up too much price. You see in, in case of uh, Asian resin has been depressed in somewhat compared to the U.S. Right. Because unless that price, you cannot should be able to absorb the price that, you know, the freight costs of $400, $500 per ton and to be able to successfully sell into like regions like Latin America. Mm. Uh, so this, or in the US, I might say. So this is what happened also for us. We do have some businesses that we import from Asia, some resins. And those resins that comes in was stuck at the port. And pretty much what we had to do was uh, actually, we had to uh, get a trucker. The trucker actually today, it's like $10,000 to Los Angeles to Ohio, for example, just to give an idea. Before it used to be $4,000. So it's just, everything is just rising from that point. But at the same time, customers, they do need the product. And we had to pass on the customers. And obviously what happens is the customers is passing this as part of the operation cost for their goods to produce into their sales price. Got it. And this translation is not perfect. So at one point, yes, we did absorb some things, some costs. And then later on, the customers was able to start taking it, but, and they needed more products. So they were like, no question asked. Give me $25,000 freight. It doesn't matter. Just bring it to me. Interesting. Well, and that's part of the inflation that we're starting to see a little bit of everywhere, right? What's interesting is I've read recently a couple of things, and I've heard, you know, from talking to some other experts that one that there's becoming that the polymer markets and resin markets are becoming more regional. It's one aspect of it. I mean, certainly in pricing, we've seen, and, and the U.S. has had dramatically higher pricing, perhaps, in other regions and the freight arbitrage is not the full story. So that's one piece. And then the second thing I read recently was that supply chains 
are going to move more vertical versus horizontal. So instead of having these supply chains that are really about going from China to the US or US to China, it's going to become North America to South America that we'll see more vertical supply chains, maybe from China and then heading south from there. So are you guys seeing shifts in supply patterns driven by, I guess, the freight rates and other factors? Yes, uh, I might say that it's near paralysis of these comments, and you cannot continue to do this. So definitely, there's a, a push for sometimes we call it east to west movement as the transcontinental shipments now in north to south, which is the regional distribution. So today we do see this change. Actually, we started seeing from last year. We have some converters that we sell polypropylene. In Central America, and they do cutleries like forks and knives. They were not used to getting phone calls from the U.S. manufacturers because they were getting a lot of those uh, cutleries, like the ones that is sold in, say, Party City. Yeah, they were coming from Asia at a much cheaper price. But as the freight rate just spiked up, also Party City started looking at you know regionally what can we source because. It, Problem about deliveries and problem about also a better cost structure because of that freight component is just inflating everything. So seeing this uh, sudden spike up, that's why one of the things that it's kind of curious about this pandemic happened is that in like Latin American region, which was it's a region that is being affected in somewhat Asia imports into Americas, not only into US but also into the South America regions, like shoes coming in or garments. Sure. That is coming Asia. All of a sudden, the local retailers are asking local producers, please, can you give me 25% more prices? You know, will be 25% higher. It doesn't matter. I'll take it. So we are seeing this phenomenon going on. And at the same time, I like to say that, you know, Toyota model of just in time, that was a nice uh, and very popular. <laughs> we realized that just in time gives no room for this kind of pandemic to react. No. So hence the chip and the lack of, uh, you know, the chips is causing all these backlogs of this. Each one of them costs a lot of money. So I think there's a rewrite of what is the optimal inventory and the operational model. And I think this is going to change in terms of not only globalization going to localization, but also just in time moving into critical supply and critical infrastructure, which also plants, uh, one of the things that you go to any car car manufacturing, if you have something broken, it's going to take you eight weeks to get the part. So it's crazy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to see a shift in how we're already seeing this, but it's going to have a long-term impact in terms of what people consider for appropriate safety stocks, what their critical inventories are, how they manage that risk differently, right? So when everything is freely available, you don't need to keep an inventory. But at the moment, things tighten up. And as we've seen, they've tightened up for a very long period of time, far longer than most people anticipated. You recognize that the risk is really manifesting and you have to deal with it differently. That's right. That's right. So risk is something that I've been talking with people about as well. So in, I think in your business, in a trading business, risk and risk management is inherent, right? So you're buying and selling products continuously. You're managing that arbitrage. And you know the, the polymers market seeing increasing levels of volatility and risk. So what tactics are you using or is Itachi using to help manage that? maybe always, and maybe it's today more than in other times. Yes. 
Well, risk management from the perspective of pricing, uh, the commercial risk. This is definitely, uh, for example, in China, there is a functioning futures market, the Dalian exchange, where you can hedge your inventory with uh, future forward instruments. And But here in the, in the US or other parts in the world, it's not yet in this kind of um, an exchange where you can trade futures. So what we are having to do is uh, sometimes we do see and as maybe it might not be a good correlation, sometimes we have to kind of manage a risk by hedging with different products. Mm. The market is going down. I probably have to hedge with some, if I have some inventory that I wanted to hedge, I sometimes have to sell something, even if it's the HDPE, it's linear low density, but I'm grabbing some of those things that are, you know, I need to kind of have a, a little position of be able to kind of absorb these variances of sudden shifts that occurs. It's not perfect because as we know, linear low density and HDP, they totally behave at one point differently, but at least it's not in a, a big disconnect, hopefully, as uh, being completely exposed. Of course, another is to have options of different sources, not only West, but also from Asia or from Middle East. I think it's a very key point of it because having the ability to source from other regions gives us that advantage that any contractual obligations we have fulfill it either buy side or the sell side. We are able to cover it in such manner. So. Another aspect that I would say is that's precisely the point about diversifying the sources. Yeah, that makes sense. So some of the trends that we've been seeing across the chemical industry, and I've been having conversations with others about is, you know, this increasing acceleration and focus on sustainability and circularity and increasing focus on digitization and just more investment there. So, you know, how is Itachi approaching this? And, and maybe let's just start with sustainability. So, I know that it's important to Itachu. You guys have made some, have some specific plans I've read about and some activities, but how does sustainability and circularity affect your resins trading in terms of just the business itself, in terms of choices of customers and suppliers? How do you guys approach sustainability in your business? Sorry, you touched the future. That's future is, yes. Today, the, I don't know if it was COVID that brought consciousness to us to see how important it is to stay healthy and to protect our nature. There's a spike up on that sustainability initiatives around the world across different business sectors. So definitely Itochu being a global company, an image for global corporate citizen, I would say, we are definitely under the light to how we are contributing to this society. And definitely Itochu uh, there's a strong initiative of going into the sustainability uh, projects. Uh, this year, we had our a new COO, Mr. Ishii, which actually, Victoria, you met here in Houston. Uh, he became the president and CEO of Itochu Corporation. His theme is to push that uh, sustainability project within Itochu in the company. So in plastic business, our sustainability outlook is we need to participate with our end users, customers, to help them bring that circularity in their business. From, I would say, convenience stores, they're also in this radar of all their products, wrappers, uh, like say wrapped plastics, the wraps and those things uh, that they consume, cutleries and everything. How do they circulate that? And one of the things that Itochu is doing, for example, is to introduce some of the recycled plastic come from the ocean. We, our 
Tokyo office, call it the ocean plastics, as maybe a, a lot of different regions does. But another item is this organization, the ISCC, which uh, regulates the, I would say, the mass balance, they call. And this is basically what post-consumer recycled product that goes into reproducing uh, finished products. They can carry on the, by, I think, the tonnage, the quantity that is being fed, the post-consumer recyclers is fed into the system and you can pass those credits to whatever finished products that you are making. For example, in, that, in this case, we are looking into a lot of those projects that, you know, we hear ExxonMobil announced that they're going to do paralysis oil and Shell as well, Chevron Phillips. There, a lot of those companies have uh, signed up for this paralysis technology. And those are great because ISCC allows ability for even recycled products to have the credit to apply in food, something which never can occur if you do real recycled plastic. Right. I mean, the advanced recycling or chemical recycling, as it's called, depending on uh, who you're talking to, does seem to solve a lot of problems, as you say, in terms of just kind of the, I think the hygiene aspects, I would almost say of recycled materials, right? If it's going through paralysis, a lot of the germs, the concerns get burned away, right? So you're back to clean materials. So that's really in many ways the what the industry is hoping really takes fold. And it needs to, right? That's going to be the fastest and the most effective to consume all of the plastics that get used on a regular basis. Yes. Actually, as you know, well aware, being silent in this business is uh, of sustainability is not going to end well because eventually you'll be kind of pointed in the society. So being proactive is very important. And from that reason is uh, having the resin trading is fine. But at the same time, we always have to piggyback that solution to our customers and to continue to be active in that area. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk about digitization. So how does digitization play out in your business? I know in the early part of the pandemic, you know, there was a, some statistics that said that, you know, across industries... We achieved, you know, five years of advancement in five months or less. The chemical industry is not known for being super advanced in many digital aspects and others. I think there's a lot, but how does that play out in Itachi and in your business? Victoria is the next frontier that is going to shape this, I'll say three to five years. Perhaps I'm precisely I'm involved in one of those initiatives for digital integration for our company, especially in this plastic business with our in New York. And we've looked at definitely digitalization. And one of the things that uh, I always kind of uh, gives me goosebumps is the Thomas Siebel's book about digital strategy. He says in his title of the book, Survive and Thrive in the Era of Mass Extinction, right? <laughs> it's a little scary. A little bit scary, but it's true. Because Amazon, Google, uh, those companies have thrived, Microsoft, and they're entering into areas that used to be the physical world of uh, not software, but now Amazon is in the physical world of online shopping, logistics, trucks, delivery, food. And you kind of realize as a trading company, it feels like there's a new entrant in our territory. Yeah. What's it? Yeah. It resins next for Amazon, right? If they go want to fully integrate the value chains to, you know, is that a choice? Correct. Yes. And they're incorporating AI to find out this, uh, say, 
customer sentiment through social media or through web reviews. And they're always seeking that forefront of what ticks the people to buy or not buy. Or this is something that is, uh, we cannot stay silent. Actually, in one of the courses that I'm taking, they call it, if you do not implement uh, some form of machine learning or AI into your business, you're going to become a legacy company. Sooner or later, you're going to fall into that trap of being extinct eventually. So in our company, we are looking into digitalization of operations, supply chains. Also, we are starting from there as we are trying to reduce the cost, as we call it in that MBA, uh, typical the Michael Porter's uh, that uh, strategy, looking at local strategy. Right. This, from that perspective, every single aspect that you can kind of uh, control costs, especially those standardized operations, uh, certain customer requests for like technical data sheets or some documents have to be made by humans. It can be done by machines if it's all stored in one place. So digitalization goes into not only planning to have all the information organized, but also in a free flow matter so that the machine itself can just operate by themselves. I do understand that there's a lot of limitations and a lot of this uh, machine learning and AI is a concept that, as you say, for a like a chemical industry, petrochemical industry, is a little bit daunting. We haven't seen the need for it or sometimes it feels like, you know, that's maybe is a, like a fantasy, but no, we see in Amazon and all these like uh, Tesla and companies that like uh, I, I was looking at, there's this company called the Descartes Lab. They do the picture imaging of the farms and agriculture and count how much soybean is going to be produced uh, this season through satellite imaging. Wow. Companies are now connecting different technologies through system to be able to get smarter and have less human intervention more automation. And one of the things that we are looking also, aside from the logistics that what I was saying about try to have that, I would say, they call it the chat bots or those email uh, funding. Uh, automation and stuff, yeah. There's also aspects about like customer relationship management. A lot of those customer relationship management also is about integrating your logistics to so that the customer can see where their cargo is flowing. So we are collaborating together with a, a shipping uh, company to try to get their updates of the shipping schedules and the routing, any of those information to be on a platform where customers can quickly see and uh, to be able to instantaneously get that information. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, people expect more transparency. We're used to it in our personal lives and we expect it in our business lives. But I think you're right with that. When you're moving stuff via ships, this marine freight has been less transparent. But yeah, this expectation of transparency and creating that, et cetera. So I'm going to move us in a slightly different direction here. So um, maybe you have different leadership challenges, I guess I would say, in a trading business than I think we have. You know, I talk to a lot of people that are maybe more traditional production, you know, manufacturing companies, et cetera. How do you see leadership? And you've obviously done very well at Tochu. So what's critical to leadership in your business? Yeah, first of all, humility, I think that has a lot to do with, there's no cookie cut answer. Maybe uh, whatever you think you know and you have control is it's probably, it's good to have some background, but at the same time, you need to be able to be agile to react to different scenarios. We've seen this in this pandemic, this roller coaster ride, that every model of business that we have kind of learned from previous history has totally thrown out of the window and we had to grasp in a different manner how to manage these 
logistics issue with these shortages and regional shortages and how to bridge the gap of the supply and the demand locations. And another thing is to look at the future that maybe, okay, we cannot stay static on just resin trading, buying and selling. We have to give service. We have to be involved in sustainability. We have to be more creative in our system to be more automated. There's in some sense, so leadership has to do with, first of all, be able to listen, to be able to capture those opportunities of where things can improve, know the epoch and to adjust to that. And to be able to push that once you have the formulation, obviously you need to build that support team and people that, you know, from your colleagues, as well as your upper management and maybe even your, yes, definitely from your colleagues uh, working with you. You need to get those supports because at the end of the day, it's even if you're in this very small corner of Itoshi Chemicals America in Houston, what we make here could be a pilot that can be implemented for the whole company. And with that vision, you need to be excellent in what you're trying to do, what your daily work is and bring everybody on board. And then automatically that leadership figure starts creating. But it's not necessarily because I think I am a leader. No, it's just, I happen to be able to kind of bring this up. So that's good. I like it. That's good. So what is next for your business? What market signals are you watching as we kind of go forward this year? Yes, definitely. There's a concern about this transitional inflation that uh, the Fed has been mentioning. A lot of people are kind of wondering going to stick or not. And at the same time, there's a lot of heightened fear of today's stock market and companies that are doing exceptionally well with uh, multiples that I've never seen before, that it looks really, really overpriced and over, I would say, stimulated economy. The reality of it, I think, is everybody's kind of crunching is things are not smooth. As we know with this logistics, there's a lot of people that is getting squeezed. Businesses margin, especially like manufacturing industry, their perspective of price increase would continue to go up if there was a, a, a run of inflation. Yes. Yeah. But now that there's a concern that it's going to be tapered, it's going to be uh, cooled down. People are going to start normalizing their budgets of buying things. They're going to start kind of disciplining themselves. When that comes to perspective, they see the light at the end of the tunnel of this, uh, I'll say, musical chair. It's going to eventually stop. And in the meantime, yes, uh, fee stocks are going up. Resin continues to creep up. As we've seen, uh, the raising prices continues to announce five cents increase every month. And this is giving a lot of pressure in the margins of the companies. So far, first half of the year, a lot of uh, manufacturers, their return, their financials look great. Part of that, I think, is uh, the inventory carryover that they were able to manage to, to boost their margins. Sure. But now looking at the moment where things are going to start curving. So yes, definitely inflation when the Fed is going to change that interest rates to, you know, kind of uh, increase, that's going to have a very strong impact in the stock market and confidence, therefore, on the overall economic. Yeah. So it's kind of your leading indicator that you guys are really watching right now to see how the demand and markets play out. It sounds like good. Honestly, I think uh, how can you control the container situation is demand has to stop. Demand was up the moment start being more realistic. I think we are still a little bit too exuberant on this purchasing spree that, you know, but I think it's getting clear. I've heard that some other markets, prices are starting to moderate, right? So I've heard, you know, lumber, for instance, was 
extremely high earlier this year. And I've heard that that's starting to moderate. And of course, a lot of that is US, but a lot of it's also, you know, I think there's imports, but in different lumber products, but it's moving in different containers, maybe not via ocean, but certainly domestically. So I think we're starting to see this in some other commodities that there's some moderation, but you're right. Things have to settle to a certain degree. And then that'll help sort out the freight issues and the container issues. Iron price just dropped. 40% in one month. Well, a lot of that had to do with the China trying to go toward the net zero policy. Yeah. They say, but at the same time, it's a huge drop on, as you say, commodities are in many fronts starting to correct. And even housing, I think, is, uh, of course, it's a very still strong housing market, but also it feels there's a little bit of a kind of, um, there's been some adjustments about the housing start numbers we see. Mm-hmm. I see that pricing is kind of stabilized a little bit on the high side. Yeah. Because it's very difficult to kind of uh, get the demand, especially like the millennial sectors, uh, the, the people that are supposed to be the new buyers of those houses. And they're not in full blown into the markets because of the too high price. So I see those things, uh, yes, indicate, as you say. Yeah, interesting. So we will see where the year plays out and how it goes forward. So anyway, Leo, it has been really great talking with you today. I appreciate you taking the time and join us on The Chemical Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, Victoria. And good luck for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks. And thanks everyone for listening to this week's podcast and stay tuned for more. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.